Hello everyone and welcome to episode 390 of So You Want To Be A Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, the fabulous author of many, many, many books. Too many to mention, <laughs> but the latest one is The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? I'm all right. I'm only laughing because there was like that pause there and I thought, oh, she's forgotten what I've written. <laughs> Sometimes I think of putting them in in a different order and then obviously that's what I tried to do then and then I got stuck of which Just order to put them in. Yourself. That's so hilarious. <laughs> um, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here. Oh, I just saw um, – I've seen the cover of my next book. I'm quite oh excited God. about it. Wow. Yes, I've That's seen the concept exciting. and it looks amazing and I'm very much looking forward to sharing it with you once I've got the, yes. you know, what Go do you call ahead. it? Go ahead. That's the word. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I have a little synapse there. Um, green light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once i got the green light, I'm ready to go. But, mm. um, yeah, in the meantime, I'm just keeping on, keeping on, talking to you, which yes. is always a highlight of my week. Oh, likewise. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get stuck into it with the world of writing and publishing. Um, We've got a couple of really good posts for you this week. They're actually both from the Australian Writers' Centre blog this week. Um, The first one is top five audio resources to improve the dialogue in your stories. Now, this is really interesting because... We all want to write authentic dialogue and we all want to write um, characters that are believable and in order for them to be be believable, they need to speak in the way Mm. that they should speak, right? They need to speak, that's right. (laughs) But not only, I mean, they might not even be from different countries, they might be from a different era because the way they spoke in the 1950s even, in the vocabulary and some of the slang, could be completely different, well, will be completely different to the way people speak. Now, I was watching this thing on, I don't even know if it was Netflix or whatever, I think it was called Men of Stone and Wood or something. It's a, a, a story about surfers. I mean, it was a documentary about surfers in Sydney. And oh. so they were interviewing some of the surfers today, as they are, you know, older people now who are still surfing. And they are sounding, you know, just Australian the way they are today. But they had clips from them um, from the 1950s when they were very young and started surfing. And my goodness, the way they spoke was completely different. Their cadence, their, their vocabulary, obviously, just the accent, just slightly more BBC. Really? And yes, absolutely. So it was fascinating to watch their own accents changed over time even though they're still living in the same area and everything but this this is a great post because it can be really useful to delve into some resources and actually hear what people spoke like during Hmm. you know certain periods um so check it out it's on the australian writer center blog and we'll put the link in the show notes but there are things like um uh resources at the national library of australia because they have an audio archive which is part of trove now if you do research in any way, shape, or form. Trove is amazing. You can, I warn you, get lost down this <laughs> for hours, as I have done many times when you're looking stuff up, because it's amazing what you will find in Trove. You know, you might find um, a newspaper from 1910, and you kind of start reading it, and then you read about this person who stole this thing, and you just go down this this rabbit hole. 
and forget about what you actually are meant to be researching. Um, <laughs> there's there's everything from you know music. There are recordings of Australians singing folk songs. There are recordings of famous people talking about you know whatever it is that they were talking about. So um, the national Li- that's the National Library of Australia. There's also the British Library, and you can hear in the British li- Library what Arthur Conan Doyle's voice sounded like, or even Ooh. what. Don Bradman sounded like in 1930 you know there's lots of um uh you know clips clips from migrants from other people and it's just fascinating to hear it as opposed to have to imagine it yeah no and it's great because it is one of those things that we talk about a lot with dialogue um and the Mm. and getting dialogue right is the importance of listening um the importance of sitting on buses and trains and listening to what's going on around you and the importance of listening to how you know older um people speak to each other with as opposed to how younger people speak Mm. to each other um and how they may actually change and reframe their speech when they talk to each other like that's the other thing to think about so if you are writing um you know something set elsewhere or you're writing something set in the past or or anything like that these are brilliant resources for for helping you to get your ear in as yes. to what um, what people might have sounded like, because as you say, it's the, it's about the cadence as much as anything else. It's about the mm. rhythm, um, the lyricism of the speech, um, all of those sorts of things make a big difference um, to how you you write um, dialogue, and you can write accent that way without having to you know yes. do kind of weird overt phonetic. accenty mm. phoneticy types of things. Yes. You can actually get that sort of um, the rhythm of the voice and the, yep. and the, and those sorts of things can make a big difference as to how a person reads that person speaking, so to speak. Absolutely, so, yeah, it's a great access, a great uh, a great uh, resource. Yes, and also <clears throat> some like decades ago, it be, it was more common to write certain dialects dialects phonetically, but mm. it's not considered appropriate these days and as you say you can achieve the same thing with the syntax and the cadence so um yeah check out this post there's also the international dialects of english archive um which you can delve into as well and a bunch of other resources so that is a good one if you are writing dialogue now the next um post we have that's really useful is how to run an effective writing group and Mm. we've actually asked some top authors who have their own writing groups um, on what they do and what their recommendations are because Pamela Freeman, who's the Director of Creative Writing at the Australian Writers' Centre, she's had the same writing group for ages. Nicole Hayes, who's one of our creative writing tutors, she often goes away with her writing group, like on retreats to the Mornington Peninsula or to wherever, and they... They're all busy writing in their in their rooms. Um, Pamela Cook has a writing group um, with people in and around Sydney. So you can do you can operate your writing group in a whole variety of ways, and you can meet, um, you know, at, at various frequencies depending on what meets the group's needs. So I think this post is really useful because each of them share um, answers to when should your writing group meet. Who should be in your writing group? Um, where should you meet? You know, because if you're meeting at the local pub, you might not get some writing done. <laughs> and do you all need to be writing in the same genre? And how to actually structure each workshop or each session, which is really, really, which I think is really interesting because it can be so tempting to just kind of go, 
oh, okay, well, should we just all, how do we do this? And it doesn't really, yeah, you really need some structure because you were part of a writing group quite a while ago. What, how did you structure that? Um, so it was about, you. it was, I think it was once a month. It was actually an online group and you had to have 2000 words a month to share, um, that got critiqued. Um, people just suggested, um, you know, changes for, you know, bits that they liked, things that they thought weren't working. If they thought a character had behaved, you know, in a way that that character probably, you know, wasn't in keeping with that character. Um, but it was a fairly, um, wide sort of, it wasn't particularly structured per se. It was more, Mm -hmm. that one was more about accountability and getting 2,000 words done a month because we, um, at that stage, all of us had very young children and a whole lot of other things to do. And so it was more about just making sure you got 2,000 words written that month. Um, And that can be, you know, for some writing groups, that can be enough. Like that that can be all you need to do is is just have a group of people to keep you accountable. Mm. Um, Because writing groups are funny things and it's it's interesting. We've had a lot of uh, interest in writing groups since we spoke about the how to find your people for a writing group um, post mm. a few weeks ago. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the Facebook community about it and all of those sorts of things because, you know, a, a writing group can be an absolutely wonderful thing, um, but the wrong writing group can be very, very difficult. Um, and yeah. it's it's really about you making a decision I think within a fairly short space of time, whether this is the right yeah. writing group for you. And I think what you're looking for there is really people who are, you don't, all, you know, you don't all have to be at the same uh, sort of, you know, level with your how long you've been writing or where you're at with your publishing or anything like that. But I think your commitment level has to be the same. So I think mm. it's about. Um, you know, if you're going to, as I said, you know, commit to the 2,000 words a month, you want to be in a group with people who are going to produce 2,000 words a month. You know, yep. someone who turns up month after month with 50,000 excuses about why they didn't get it done is not a useful person for your writing group. And it's, it can actually be – because writing groups can be quite – you know, fraught sometimes, you know, if the personalities aren't quite right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's about finding the right mix, you know. It's like any kind of um, thing. Um, I think it's brilliant that, that these authors have shared their tips because these are long-standing writing groups. Mm. This is what's working for them and um, has worked for a long time and these are all people who have, you know, multi-published um, and they're still, you know, using their writing groups for critiquing purposes and for review and all of – and, and accountability. Um, so there's a lot of value in the right writing group and sometimes it's just a matter of you know it's like dating you've got to (laughs) got to try a few different things until you find the right one yes that's right and the interesting thing is that they are all different which goes to show that you need to do what works for the dynamics of that particular group so Pamela Cook's group has it does things fairly loosely and they do a roundup of everyone's issues and and maybe share a scene if they need feedback on it um but with uh, Pamela Freeman, they focus on one or two, the, the writing of um, one or two people in each session with strict mm. time limits. Whereas in Nicole Hayes' group, they prefer to focus on one writer at a time. So there's a designated week for you. You have to disseminate your work in a, week, a weekend in advance so that other people can have a chance to read it and so on. So, yeah, it's a matter of trying different things until you find the right fit or until you find the structure that works for your group. So, yeah, definitely an interesting one. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. Now, let's move on to our giveaway giveaway this week. This is very cool. Mm. We have a five-book pack in time to curl up 
for some reading bliss over, you know, Easter, over the holidays. So the pack includes popular recent release books, including Honey Bee by Craig Sylvie, Hideout by Jack Heath, Elizabeth and Elizabeth by Sue Williams, The Shaman by Roland Perry, and The World at My Feet by Catherine Isaac. So you get to win a pack of all five of those books. Go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on the 29th of March. This um, competition is open for a couple of weeks. So get in on it. Five books headed your way. writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, Mm. are you ready for the word of the week? Well, you know, how could I not be ready? (laughs) It's hypochorism. Have you heard of that? No, I have not heard of that. Hypochorism, it does sound a little bit like a disease or Mm, something that can overextend or something like that, Mm. you know, because of hypo. Uh, But according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it's a pet name, especially, yes, especially a diminutive, 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 (laughs) yeah, that's right, diminutive, like Betty for Elizabeth or Al for Al or Val for Val (laughs) for Valerie, so Al for Alison, or, well, Procrastive Puppy, Yes. Okay, so that's part. That's not diminutive. That's well, longer. No, it is, isn't it? Mm. Well, yeah, so anyway. Not about that. Okay, so that's maybe so not a nickname per se. It's a different. It's different to a nickname. Well, am I making it hard for you, Val, by well, asking you these questions? Because it's from the Greek, meaning to use child talk. That kind of, mm. you know, implies that it's not just really um, something that is shorter. It's something that a child would say. Okay. You know? All right. Because, like, you can see how people would use Betty or a child would prefer procrastinate puppy. You see what I mean? <laughs> I don't know that a child would, but okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I suppose you're right. <laughs> okay. See if you can incorporate some hypochorisms in your uh, – in your conversations this week or even try to include the word hypochorism. Mm. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Margaret Morgan's novel, The Second Cure, is out now through Penguin Books Australia and it's also being turned into a mini-series. Here's what Margaret says. My name is Margaret Morgan. I'm an author. Um, I've just had my first novel published and I'm working on my second. I've been a writer all my life, um, either professionally or just for fun, and squeezed into other professions, but um, it's definitely where I'm staying now. I decided to do the course at uh, the Australian Writers' Centre, um, Write Your Novel, the six-month course, when a friend told me about it, and I realised it was exactly what I needed at that point to help me get the novel written and to give me the kind of support I needed. 
I was prompted to take the course specifically because I wanted the kind of encouragement and support that a six-month ongoing course would allow me. The tutor in the course was really fantastic, somebody who's written many, many novels herself and um, is very encouraging and really is good at identifying the strengths and weaknesses in writing. One of the impacts that the course has had on me has been to demonstrate to me that I actually can be a writer, can be a novelist specifically. It has allowed me to make connections that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to make within the industry. And probably one of the best things about it is the writing group that was formed with a bunch of us in that particular course. And that was like, what, three or four years ago. We're still meeting every month and critiquing each other's work. And it's a really valuable thing. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that I really could be a novelist. And that was such a revelation to me and such a delight. It was something I'd always wanted and suddenly now I've got it. I would say you really should join the Australian Writers' Centre because it's staffed by real professionals. It's a really good, well-structured organisation that's got great courses that are practical as well as inspiring. Anyone who's thinking of doing one should really think about it very seriously because it's a very, very valuable organisation and the courses are terrific. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novelwriting. All right, let's move on to our writer-in-residence this week. Do you know who it is, Al? I do not know who it is, Val. Okay. Who is it? It is, well, it's somebody that we have both known, oh, for decades now, a really long time, because um, he's a wonderful feature writer. He's written for, you know, Good Weekend, for oh, countless publications in Australia and overseas. Is just brilliant. Um, started off as a music writer, but expanded to more general features and is just has such a way with words. Um he is uh, he is also a writer of non-fiction books, but he has just released his first novel, Driving Stevie Fracasso. So we are talking about none other than Barry Devola. Hmm, that's exciting. Yes, very exciting. So let's have a listen to my chat with Barry Devola. Barry Devola, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Valerie Koo, it has been too long. I'm a long-time listener, first-time guest, but any excuse to talk to you after so many years is a good excuse. Oh, this is so exciting because one of the things when you are reading the book of somebody you know and when you're reading the book of somebody that you've known for a while is you get really stressed out. I get really stressed <laughs> out. I really do. And because you want to like it and you want to think it's fabulous and all of that. And I have to say, I absolutely love your book. I devoured every single word. I love the story. I love the characters. I cannot say enough good things about it. So congratulations. Well, thank God for that, Valerie, because it'd be a really embarrassing conversation if you really hated the book. So, yeah, I'm glad my check cleared and you said those kind words. Thank you very much. All right. So Driving Steve Fracasso, for readers who haven't got their own copy yet, and you all should, it's fantastic, can you tell us what it's about? I can. Firstly, it's called Driving Stevie. Stevie, sorry, it is. <laughs> it is. Driving Stevie for a car side. I'll give you my elevator pitch. I've Go got on. two elevator pitches. The first one is if you're going from like the, the car park up to Coles, like two <laughs> floors, right? So mm -hmm. this is the first one. So Driving Stevie for a car side is the story of two brothers who haven't seen each other in almost 30 years and they find themselves stuck together 
in a stolen 1985 Nissan Stanza on a road trip from Austin, Texas to New York City in the days leading up to 9-11. You can get out of the lift now and go and do your shopping. (laughs) So that's the short pitch. And then if we're going a few more floors, I'd say the younger brother, whose name is Rick, he's this jaded music journalist who's just lost everything. He's lost his only paying writing gig. He's lost his long-term girlfriend who's broken up with him. And subsequently, because of number two, number three, he's lost his apartment in New York. And this is, all happens in the space of 24 hours. But then he gets thrown this lifeline. He's, he's commissioned to write a book about a guy called Stevie Fricasso, who was the front man in a, a 1970s band called Driven to Distraction. And he pretty much blew his chances in 1980 and blew his mind kind of went crazy there's one small problem and one small complication stevie fracasso is rick's long-lost brother so that's how they end up stuck in this car together rick's got to drive him from austin to new york to do this last gig and to write a book about him and interview him about his life so they drive from Austin to New Orleans, Clarkstown, Mississippi, Memphis, Nashville, Knoxville, Philadelphia, um, getting into all sorts of scrapes along the way, trying to piece together their fractured past and figure out where their future is going to go and meet, meeting an array of pretty crazy characters along the way too with a soundtrack. Yes, with a soundtrack. There's a lot of music in this book, but we'll come to that. So it's a hmm. very, very specific and unique premise. What? How did you? How did this idea come into your brain? It came into my brain. Well, for a start, it came to my brain about ten years ago. So it's taken a long time to get oh. onto a bookshelf. Um, and I suppose, Valerie, there are one, two, three, four main areas that inspired the book the first one's new york this Mm. is a large part of the book is it's my love letter to new york in a way because i just love new york it's not just my favorite city it's one of my favorite things really (laughs) and i've never lived in new york but i visit new york every year apart from last year and probably this year and Mm. possibly next year with covid (laughs) But uh, since 1991, I've gone almost every year and I write about it. I do interviews there. I write travel stories. I interview musicians. I interview store owners, all sorts of people. And I always wanted to write a story that's got New York as as its heart. And especially 9-11, because in 2001, on my regular trip, I I landed 10 days after Mm. 9-11 and got to experience what was going on and what the people were going through. And I'd hang out in Union Square every night where hundreds of people would gather and there were horrible arguments, but there were also people linking arms and, and singing and kids signing these huge sheets of paper with messages of hope and drawing pictures and Buddhists chanting and people trying to get signatures for peace marches and people just want to talk. You know, mm. I think it it sort of broke the shell of New York mm. and people just thought, how are we going to deal with this? You know, we're going to have to talk to each other. But everyone was talking. So I knew I wanted to write about New York as, just as the city I love and everything it contains. But also I wanted 9-11 in there. So that was the first thing. Mm. 
The second thing, as you've already alluded to, Valerie, is, is music. And, you know, music's obviously a huge part of my life. And I was a total music nerd as a kid and as a teenager. And then I ended up becoming a music critic and journalist and making it my, my life. Um, so I wrote the whole book to a soundtrack. And uh, actually, I'll send a link to the Spotify soundtrack i've made a, a, a playlist for it that your listeners can all all listen to we'll put that uh, in the show notes that's great <clears throat> yeah and so a lot of those songs actually seeped into the narrative and if you've read the book you know that there's a bunch of songs in there that actually are integral mm. to the story so that's the second thing the third thing is brothers i really wanted a brother story i do have a brother but he's younger than me and he's a boat builder so okay. this story's got nothing to do with <laughs> me and my brother or my mother and father who stayed together till they died and didn't have the horrible relationship that the parents in this book have mm -hmm. um but i really wanted to talk about a brother relationship because i just think it's such a uh, a deep and at times fraught relationship, but at the same time, it's a very strong one. Mm. And uh, I was a senior writer for Rolling Stone for a, for a while, which basically means I was bald. That's what you have to do to be a senior <laughs> writer there. <laughs> they certainly don't pay you any more money, I can tell you that. And within the space of a year, in about 2010, I interviewed two sets of brothers. Um, one was Rocky Erickson, who was in a band called the 13th Floor Elevators, and his brother Sumner. Um, and the other one's Jeremy Oxley from the Sunny Boys, the Sydney band from uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Mm. And I interviewed him and his brother Pete. Now, both Rocky Erickson and Jeremy Oxley had severe mental health issues that basically derailed their careers and derailed their lives. But it was their younger brothers who brought them through. Mm. And they both had revivals in their careers as a result of their brothers helping them. And although Rick and Stevie isn't about Rocky Erickson and it's not about Jeremy Oxley and their brothers, interviewing them sort of gave me an extra spark and helped me sort of ground the idea and made me think, where can I take this fictional story of these fictional brothers in the music world? Mm. And so that really helped a lot. And the final, the fourth thing, sorry, mm. this is a long no, answer no, about a... inspirations, but the fourth one is US road trips because oh, yeah. I've taken a ton of them in the last 25 years and I just love them. I mean, just the sense of possibility mm. when you hit the road, the romance of it, the, the freedom of the open road, making decisions every day about where you're going to go and where you're going to stop and who you're going to talk to and what bar you're going to walk into. And I love road movies too. And mm. so as I was, I've written a lot of short fiction and I've written nonfiction books. This is my ninth book, but it's my first full-length novel. Mm. Um, I had one book of short stories, short fiction. And I thought this is such a massive undertaking, as you would know. Mm. Um, I need signposts along the way uh, ah. and stops I can make. And I thought, well, why don't I take that literally and make it a road trip. Then mm. I know I'm going to stop in certain cities and meet certain people and have certain things happen in the story in these cities. And so I mapped out the route and tried to make it cities that I'd been to, mm. that I knew, so I could have that grounding in them as I wrote them. 
And I just found that really helped with the writing of Driving Stevie Fracasso because it gave me literally a roadmap that I could follow. And you thought all this through before you even started writing? You that Because that's really logical and really yeah. uh, really smart. Um, did you... It would be nice to think that I was that logical, <laughs> Valerie, but like I said, I had this idea in 2010. So these ideas sort of coagulated slowly <laughs> over the years. So I wrote a lot in... 2010, 2011, bit of 2012, then I had two kids, uh, I had a mortgage, I, my journalism really started taking off and getting really busy. Like like I said, I'm a freelance writer, so, um, you know, you just got to say yes to everything and you've yes. got to really push, push, push. So I just had so much work on that the space for creative writing became smaller and smaller and it kind of went by the wayside for a while. Mm. I wrote lots of short story, stories. I won a few awards and, and, and got published a lot. But, and I thought, well, that's, that's me. I'll just be the short story guy. Um, but this was niggling at me that I had this idea and I had a bunch of it written, but it was just sitting there. And every now and then I'd go back to it. Christmas holidays, I'd sit down with it again. When mm. I get a spare moment, I'd sit down with it again. But it just, you know, I needed a kick in the ass. Can I say kick in the ass? Yes, of course you can. <laughs> oh, good. I'll say it again. I needed a kick in the ass. Do you know who gave me the kick in the ass? Who? Trent Dalton. Really? How? Yeah. Okay. So I was moseying along at my stupid slow pace, not doing anything on this book. And I interviewed Trent for the Sunday Times magazine, which is the Sunday magazine here in Perth where mm -hmm. I live. Mm -hmm. And um, speak, I mean, you've had Trent on the show, haven't you? Or haven't no, you? we haven't actually. Oh, he is the most enthusiastic person on the planet probably. Definitely the most enthusiastic writer I've ever met. And... Um, he just, talking to him just put a bolt of electricity through me. And he, t he told me with Boy Swallows Universe, mm. he wrote it from 8 a.m., sorry, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. every night after doing a full day as yeah. a feature writer at the Australian <laughs> magazine. He's got two daughters, much like myself. Mm. So he's got family duties, responsibilities, a wife who wants to talk to him every now and then. <laughs> you know, all the stuff I had. Yeah. And yet... He punched out this book, this phenomenal book, yes, um, and and did it. So I thought I got off the phone from him and thought, you know, come on, Devola, pull <laughs> your finger out and get it done. But more importantly, meeting Trent, doing that story, I had to do secondary interviews, which your mm. listeners probably know what they are. But just in case they don't. <laughs> When you're doing a big feature, this is a 4,000-word feature, you have to talk to other people around your subject to, yep. to get the story. So I spoke to Trent's publisher, Catherine Milne at HarperCollins, about Trent, and she was lovely, and we chatted for ages, actually, about lots of stuff apart from Trent. Mm. And at the end of the interview, she said, have you got a novel in your Barry? <laughs> and I said, Catherine, actually, I've got one about two-thirds of the way out of me. And she said, when it's all the way out of you, why don't you send it to me and I'll have a look. Wow. And that's all she said. So I sent it to her on Christmas Eve 2019 because <laughs> I gave myself till Christmas to send it. So I mm -hmm. went right to the deadline. <laughs> and then in January, uh, I, was, I went to Sydney to visit family and she said, let's have lunch. 
And this is, okay, this is a great story because this is like, it was like a date. <laughs> you know those dates when you think you're going out to dinner with someone and then they, they call you yeah. and say, oh, look, something's come up. Can we just have a coffee and maybe a bite to eat at lunchtime? <laughs> it was that. It was that call. Okay. And I, thought, I thought, okay, she's letting me down gently. Yeah. She had meetings all afternoon, could only meet me in the lobby of HarperCollins in Sydney <laughs> at the coffee cart for toasted sandwiches oh and God. coffee. My big literary lunch <laughs> was gone out the window. I met her, we sat, we talked for like 15 minutes about everything but the book. And then she said, Barry, let's talk about your manuscript. I love it. I want to acquire it. Mm. And that was it. I was off. So that 10 years was just culminated in those, what, eight words that Catherine (laughs) said. That's fantastic. uh, The structural edit started and I, (laughs) that's what I spent nine months of last year doing. That was my COVID year was the structural edit. Now, I want to come back to the book, but I'd just like to give listeners a bit of an idea of your background. I know that we've mentioned you're a freelance journalist, but way, way long time ago, you started life off in teaching. But then because you now correct me if my memory serves me. I mean, let me know if my memory serves me correctly. But you while you were teaching, you were really into music and you started doing reviews like can you just tell us how you got into it and then some of the you know career milestones up until this point just so we get a bit of background i can i can um this is the best job interview ever (laughs) um so yes i was just casual teaching and then i was special needs teaching Mm -hmm. i taught kids with um visual impairment um as well and reading difficulties which was actually really rewarding but i knew i wanted to be a writer and that i didn't really want to be a teacher so, as we've established, I was a complete music nerd. Or you could chop off the music, actually. I was just a nerd, <laughs> but I was really into music. So, I started writing for the free music papers that were everywhere back then. Yeah. Or every capital city in Australia had a free music paper. And in Sydney, it was called On the Street in yeah. the late 80s, and it ended up becoming Drum Media after that. So, I started, I just wrote three record reviews on spec and just mm. dropped them just so long ago that uh, I tied them to a carrier pigeon's leg and <laughs> flew the carrier pigeon over there. No, I actually went in with my typed up thing and handed it in very nervously. <laughs> and I picked up the paper the next week at the record store and all three of them were in there. Brilliant. And I called them and said, oh, thanks for printing my reviews. And they said, yeah, when are you coming in to pick up your pay? I went, what? <laughs> I get paid as well? And I went in and met the editor and she said, so what else are you going to write for us? Do you want to do some stories? Do you want to do interviews? And that was just, it opened up this whole new, I wish I'd done it five years before, yeah. but I do everything too late. <laughs> um, and so that was my start. Um, and so I continued to write for the street press, even when I got started getting jobs at glossy mags and, mm. you know, reputable, what, quote marks, reputable magazines. But the street press, honestly, was such a great start for so many writers I know, great writers I know. Mark Mordew, who's just published the Mm. the Nick Cave book, he he was writing with me at On the Street. We Mm. were, a lot of us grew up doing that stuff. Um, Anyway, so then I travelled for a while. um, And then when I came back, I got a job as a sub-editor at Dolly magazine. Mm. 
um, <laughs> which was a great gig um, because it taught me how magazines work, being yep. a sub-editor. I and you got lots production. of free mascara and lipstick. <laughs> I did. And to this day, my wife still laughs. I know how to apply um, moisturiser around the eye area with the ring finger of your hand so it's not too hard on your eye, the soft skin around the eye. Um, she was convinced I was gay when we met, by the way, <laughs> when I shared that little bit of information with her. Um, so, yes, Dolly was great. I stayed there for a year and a half or two years. Then I got a job for a year at Countdown magazine when it still existed. I was mm. deputy editor and feature writer. And then I went freelance. So from about 1990, I've just been a full-time freelance writer with great gigs along the way that have kept me going. I was the music critic at Who magazine for 24 years, which was just the wow. best gig. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I was review- reviewing for Clio, yes. um, where our association begins, I believe. Yes, yes that's right. Um, and, yeah, and I, I was writing for the Sydney Morning Herald, which I still do to this day, writing feature stories for the Sydney Morning Herald. But um, now you, but you, you write a lot more than just music. You know, you write features about all sorts of things these days, right? I do. Yeah. I do, yeah. And I, I started that a while ago because I figured yeah. it was great, you know, and I still love writing about music and I still do write about music. But back then... We were kind of unicorns. There weren't many of us around, really. Mm. So it was great. You could actually cobble together a freelance career just writing about music. Those days, people, I'm sorry to inform you out there, <laughs> it's gone. You pretty much can't do that anymore. You've got to diversify. So I quickly did. Mm. And um, it started with writing about film and TV. I had a TV column in one magazine under a pseudonym, yeah. actually, mm. and, um, and film, books. And general features. Uh, I wrote for the Sydney magazine for the long, a long time. I had a couple of columns in there and I wrote feature magazines before that closed. Um, and for the Sydney Morning Herald, I write about everything from arts to entertainment. To po- I'm the podcast writer there for Spectrum mm. um, and general features as well. Um, and so... so yeah. Writing fiction is very, very different. It's a very different process and a very different practice to writing nonfiction, which is kind of a little bit more restricted, obviously, because you're restricted to fact. What was the experience, right? Because as you've said, you've written, this is your ninth book. So you've written eight other long pieces, long books. Um, What was the experience like writing fiction after being so used to writing nonfiction in all its forms? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think first I'd say there are there are commonalities between the two that I could take over from my life as a journalist into fiction. And some of those things, I guess, would include great openings. Yes. I mean, you know, when you're writing for a magazine or a newspaper, if you don't grab a person in the first sentence... Mm. You're gone. They're not going to. No one's got a gun to their head saying you have to read this magazine story. Mm. You know, if you don't grab them, they've flicked the page or or gone or, or, you know, on on phones, it's even worse. You're gone, right? Yeah. Click. Yeah. So that really taught me a valuable lesson about that opening has to be killer. You really have to grab the reader by the lapels and say, you need to read this. Mm. Um, and that's why the opening from Driving Stevie Fracasso was less than a page long and just throws you into the action straight away. Mm. I really wanted to do that. Um, similarly, 
endings, whether it's not just the ending of the book, but the mm. ending of a chapter, mm. I find what we call in journalism, as you would know, the kicker, the lead is the beginning, L-E-D-E, and mm. the kicker is the ending. Leads and kickers, leads and kickers, we get it drummed into us. Your lead's mm. not strong enough. You've buried your lead. It's in the fourth paragraph. Bring it up. Yep. Your kicker's not strong enough. Can you link up to the, to the lead somehow with your kicker? Mm. So they were really valuable lessons for when I was, I was writing fiction. But you're right. It's a different discipline. And even though I've written lots of short fiction, Writing the novel was like the difference between a 200-metre sprint and a marathon, you know. Mm. And um, you have to keep up the thread of the story. You've got subplots. You've got all these different characters you've got to think about. You've got flashbacks because even though my story is set in 2001, I go back to the mid-'90s, I go back to the early-'70s. So let's unpack that. Let's unpack that because... This is a road trip, as you say, and there are signposts in that they visit certain places. But as you say, it actually, and it's told from Rick's point of view, but he does go back to his childhood. He goes back to different points of his life. What did you do on a practical level to to work out where these threads, these timeline, these bits were going to be, these scenes were going to be in the overall story so that it made sense? Yeah. I What I did try to do, Valerie, was make sure that I only gave people or the reader information when they needed it. Mm. So I'd think, okay, if I want to get across here something about Rick's relationship with his big brother Stevie, I'm going to have to put in something here about their childhood in mm. the 70s to explain that. Otherwise, this is going to have a big payoff when this big emotional thing happens when they're on the road. Mm. Um so then I'd have to go back to the 70s, put on my flares, um, <laughs> and go back to the 70s and think, okay, what was happening back in the 70s in their family that makes this moment here in 2001 such an emotional thing? Mm. And I have, a lo- I have to completely thank Catherine Milne, my publisher and editor for this. She gave me a structural edit that was just, I feel like framing it, it was so good. It was 12 pages long. Because mm. what people, maybe some people know this, but maybe some don't. When your publisher says, I love your book, I want to buy it, here, sign on the dotted line, here's mm. a bit of money so you don't die while you're, <laughs> before it gets published so you can eat. Mm-hmm. Um, then the structural edit comes, which is this, thing saying, we love you, here's how we'd like you to change a bit. <laughs> um, but the, it was so good because she was saying, I need this bit, can you explain this a bit more? Can you deepen this? Can you tell me can more about this Can you give us some examples, or like, sure. like maybe a real life example of what, without giving anything away, obviously? Yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. This, this thing actually we've been talking about that led us to, to this part of the conversation is actually a really good example. She said to me, um, look, I love where it ends up with, with, with Stevie and Rick, but I just feel we need something in the past. And she, her, her exact words in her edit were, a big brotherly musical moment from the past. Mm. That's what we need to make this payoff work. <sighs> and so 
I went back and thought, okay, what can I do here? So I sent them back to their childhood and I sent them back to New York City to a night they had together in New York City yeah. where they had an epiphany yeah. at a concert um, and ended up in mm. Greenwich Village, a wonderful moment for them both. And I really wanted to make it big, so I really went for it. So that's an example of how sometimes flashbacks are terrible in books because it's like, oh, can you just get on with the story? I don't need to know this. <laughs> mm. But Catherine was telling me she needed this to explain this, so it was really important to have yes. a flashback here. So that was an example of how it really mm. worked well to go to a different time era. But with that, for example, you got a 12-page structural edit from Catherine, but I imagine that in your last eight non-fiction books, there would have been not there. There would not have been that level of um, uh, change required, and there wouldn't have been much of a structural edit. I mean, am I right? And so, was this a shock to you when you got the twelve pages? Uh, it wasn't a shock to get the edit. I must say, twelve pages at first, it was like what? <laughs> That's what without a T at the end. <laughs> what? Um, but then I started reading it and I went, yeah, I kind of knew that. Oh, yeah, I kind of knew that too in the back of my head. And mm. then, oh, my God, Catherine, that's that's fantastic. I didn't even think of that. For instance, one thing, I'll just give you one example, Valerie. Mm. One thing she said was, I feel like we need something else about three quarters of the way through, just something, a, a sort of curveball that gets thrown in there. And, and she put some examples of what these curveballs could actually be. Mm. And one of the things that she listed was they get a dog. <laughs> it was literally that, they get a dog. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> and I started thinking about it and I thought, wait a minute, I've got this scene that I completely cut in a bar that I love this scene, but mm. it kind of didn't work in the book. It just, I took it out and it really didn't make much difference apart from the fact that I loved the scene and I thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. And then I threw a dog into it yeah. that they end up adopting on the road into this scene that I already had and it just completely worked. Yes. So I yes. got to fulfil that bit of the edit <laughs> and I got to reinstate this scene I loved with this extra element of a dog in it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So this... <laughs> Music is throughout, um, but I want to say to people, even if you're not into music, this book is just fantastic, compelling. You don't have to be into music to to love it. Um, but if you are into music, you're going to love it. You're going to just be relating to so many things. Um, so music is in it. What did you, how did you plan that? Did you kind of just, as you went along, kind of threw in the, the kind of music that would be relevant at the time, or did you have specific things that you knew you wanted to include for whatever reason? Uh, well, the answer is a little of both, actually. There are, I listened to a lot of music while I was writing it. Mm. Um, and certain artists, too, really were kind of touchstones for me. Um, the Velvet Underground work, just to me, they represent New York music of a certain era. Mm. The Replacements, who are an 80s US band, the, the singer from that band was a bit of a patron saint for me. Just the songs he writes are almost like Raymond Carver short stories mm. in a way. Mm. Um, that hard-bitten sort of character study that, that he does. And then the problem is I'm terrible at writing music, writing fiction while I'm listening to lyrics. 
So oh, even though yeah. I was listening to all of that while I was thinking and writing notes and coming up with ideas, when I actually sit down to write, I, I'm hopeless. I just get lost and think, and then I want to Google something, you know, to do with the band I'm listening to and all that yeah. kind of thing. So I listen to a lot of jazz, actually, and instrumental oh. music. So I And I love Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins. Now, anyone that reads the book will know that not Miles Davis so much, but Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane end up feet less music features in the book quite heavily in two scenes that are quite pivotal. Mm. And that totally came from me listening to it all the time mm. as I was writing. And a lot of these songs... Although they inform the mood and the atmosphere for different sections of the book, I'd have different types of music I listened to, some of them literally did that and entered the book mm. and became plot points or diversions. One song I got permission to quote the lyrics, Nada, Nada Surf's mm. song, Paper Boats. I got in touch with the singer who owned his publishing and said, go for it, just send me a copy of the book oh, when wow. it's done. That's and that became, you know, a line of dialogue in the book and everything. Mm. So, yeah, music soundtracked the book for me as far as atmosphere and feel and place, and it also affected the book as well and took it in a couple of different directions just tweaked it a little bit in different directions I sometimes didn't expect. Mm. Was it sometimes a bit, because the book is infused with music and, as you say, it's infused in um, not just the mention of certain musicians but the mood, the sense of place and stuff like that. Did you find it frustrating <laughs> that, I mean, because you got permission from, from that um, one artist, but did you find it frustrating that you couldn't, that you wanted to include lyrics that must have been in your brain because lyrics are so connected to with our experience with a place and or a time and events, but there are so many any restrictions with quoting lyrics in in a fictional in a novel like this yes yes and yes <laughs> um it's totally frustrating it's a total minefield mm -hmm. and for any aspiring novelists that are listening to this right now can i say something to each and every one of you <laughs> don't quote lyrics in your novel it's just <laughs> not worth it yeah it's it's a total pain. You'll probably have to pay. pay I, I can guarantee you'll have to pay for it and mm. you're not going to get a lot of money for your advance, believe me. I can speak from experience. Um, and it, it's just you've got to deal with music publishers and it's a minefield. Mm. So I know that I wanted to quote so many lyrics, obviously, and I know a lot of people that write mm. books do, especially books that are set in this sort of genre. But it just find a workaround you can find a workaround I found a workaround mm. so you can do it and I know it's sometimes easy just to quote a lyric to get a mood or to get across something you want or just to sound cool I know I mm. wanted to sound cool but um, it's much easier to just throw that idea out the window right now and free yes. yourself of a lot of pain later on down the line yeah a friend of mine wanted she uh she wanted to quote um so she she won the vogel and this was quite some time ago though um and she wanted to quote just the lines sky rockets in flight afternoon delight which is <laughs> only a few words that's a that, but man if you're going to quote a line well yeah on, that is a great line but it was going to cost twenty thousand dollars and that was years wow. ago so imagine what it's like now anyway 
So, um, wow, they were having a lend on themselves. <laughs> $2,000, give me a break. I mean, mm. everyone's loves Afternoon Delight. Who could not love that song? But crazy, but yeah, right? Ridiculous. <laughs> so, <laughs> you've you write about obviously real albums, you, you make reference to um, real albums and songs, but you ov- obviously make reference to fictional um, mm. ones as well. And when you do, do you have particular either fictional songs in mind or real songs in mind so that you can write about these fictional songs with authenticity? Yeah. Um, this is this is a question. I was, I've, I've been hoping someone would ask me this question, Valerie, <laughs> so thank you. Um, I, knew, I knew you'd do it. Um, so, yes, yes. Um, Driven to Distraction is the fictional name of this band that Stevie Fricasso was in in the 1970s. And I wanted this long-lost album that only came out years after the band broke up and became this cult album. Mm. It hardly sold any copies but became hugely influential. So that was the idea. So I thought, well, I better create what this album is in my Mm. head so I've got a good idea about it. So I came up with a title, which is Future Tense. I envisaged the artwork that the oh. back cover they were photographed uh, against a wall oh, at CBGB's yeah. yep. I, I figured out what Stevie looked like mm-hmm. then I thought okay I need a track listing so yeah. I started I made up 12 track names song <laughs> names and then I wanted a review of the album so my fictional um music critic who's kind of the Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda figure for Rick, this older music journalist, Elliot Toastman. I've got him writing this 2,000-word fictional record review about a fictional album mm. by a fictional band, and he's writing about fictional songs. Yes. So as I wrote the review, I started creating these songs in my head, what the lyrics were and what they might sound like and what they mean, <laughs> what they're based on. But here's where it gets, here's where the rabbit hole really gets uh-huh. deep. Are you ready? Okay. So I play in a band here in Perth called Radio Radio. So I, I knew I'd get a plug in somewhere. <laughs> We're great. Best power pop, new wave, post-punk punk band in Perth, let me tell you, for the over 50s set. Do yourself uh, a favour, everyone. Go see them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I started writing and recording the actual <gasps> songs on the album. I, I haven't done them all. There's 12 songs in the album, but I've done three. Oh, my God. Yeah. One's called Avenues, Avenues Without Numbers. Um, one's called Please Find Me, which, as you know, yeah. having read the book, is uh-huh. integral to the book. Oh, my God. And the last one is Why Don't You Come Back to New York City, which my band actually we played at my book launch. Craig Sylvie very kindly launched my book here mm. in Perth at this amazing bar that looks like the inside of Ernest Hemingway's brain after he wrote the old man in the sea it's like just this nautical it's got sharks and and swordfish and fishing rods everywhere and my band played at it and we played a bunch of songs that influenced the book and i would talk between songs about how these songs relate to the book and i played why don't you come back to new york city which is a song i wrote about a fictional band and their fictional album in the late 1970s so you know what's got to happen now right so because album well not only (laughs) album listen it's because as i was reading this book i could totally see the movie 
a thousand percent. So not only is the movie going to get made, this the fictional album that you're writing, that you're actually writing the rest of the songs to, is going to be the soundtrack to the movie, and it's going yeah. to be huge. Well, can I can I tell you something? Okay. I, I want I want Netflix series. I think, oh, but the yes. movie's fine. But I've already casted in my head. Are you? Uh, yeah, are you, you want to hear who I've got? Who, yeah, in my, this is in my head. Okay. I, I, haven't, I haven't asked them yet. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> okay, so Stevie is, and he's going to have to bulk up a bit for the role. But John okay. Cusack is Stevie. Oh my god! You're not going to believe this. That's who I cast. Oh come on! I'm not kidding. It's got to happen. Can you get Cusack's people on the line? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I was. I, I'm not even kidding. That is exactly who I cast. Fantastic. We're on the same oh page, Valerie. You can come on as executive producer. <laughs> um, for Rick, I've got Paul Rudd. We're going to rough him up a little, oh, old Paul, yeah. but I think okay. Paul would be great. He's a bit of an everyman and he's yep. a bit, he, he plays hangdog really well, Yes. I think. Yes, perfect. Linda he's Cardellini perfect. as Jane. Oh. Ja- actually, Jane's in her mid-30s. Linda Cardellini is now 45, mm. but she doesn't look 45. But the biggest thing, reason I want Linda Cardellini is I've got a huge crush on her. Okay. <laughs> so that would be great. But that that could go to another actress, but we'll see. Sure. Um, as the crazy fan that they mm-hmm. visit along the way, yes. Zach Galifianakis. Oh, yes. Have yes. I got that name right, Galifianakis? I'm not sure, but I know He'd be. He's per- that's completely who I envisaged as I was writing it. I thought yeah. he's perfect. Yeah. And as Elliot Toastman, the older, wiser mm-hmm. music critic, Actually, not an. Well, he has acted, but he's a film director. But in oh. my head, this is what he looked like: Jim Jarmusch, the oh, film director, okay. with a big shock of white hair, right. tall chain smoker, yes. always wears a black suit. Wow! Um, so I that's had not cast. cast him in my head, but oh my god, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. John Cusack. That's well, let's do it. Let's done. do it. This is so exciting. Okay. Oh my god, there's so many questions. So many questions, but um. Just take us through, because um, I know that uh, this uh, we've probably run out of time, but there's so many questions. So just take us through when you're actually in the depths of writing. So I guess not in that break period, but when you were getting back into it. Hmm. Were you, um, what did your day look like? Were you as structured as Trent Dalton by writing, you know, this between this time and this time every day? Or how did you achieve like getting the words on the paper? Well, firstly, no one is as structured <laughs> as Trent Dalton, so I can, can't even pretend that I was. Okay. No, my routine is not really a routine at all. It's pretty crazy. Um, I think I mentioned I've got two daughters under the age of 10. Mm. Um, my wife works four days a week, a pretty demanding job, so she's out the door at 8 and not back till quarter to 6. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot of the drop-offs and pick-ups. Then I've got my journalism career, for what it's worth, to pay the bills. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of journalism to do. There's a lot of family stuff to do and just a lot of life to do. So I find on a good day what I do is get up by 6 o'clock um, and get a good hour and a bit done before my daughters actually wake up um, mm-hmm. and the day has got to begin. And I find that an hour at 6 o'clock in the morning is worth about three hours in the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, there's just not as much distraction. Everything's quiet and you just sort of get down to the task at hand. And that thing when you're waking up and your mind's still not quite there, mm. I think it's a good time to write because I think you can access something going on in your subconscious a bit better. 
Mm. Um, and then I try to grab time during the day, so I'm, but you know I'm easily distracted. A and B, I've got a lot of um, deadlines for mm. magazine and newspaper deadlines. So it's like, well, I could take today off and just write, but hey, that story for the Sydney Morning Herald is due well oh, tomorrow morning, <laughs> and you haven't finished it. So yeah. Um, so today, for instance, just as an example, I've got a record review to write. Uh, that's due in two days. I haven't mm. started it. I've got a podcast story to write. That's due in a well, I've got a week to do that one. That's and that's not too bad. Um, and I've pitched a couple of things to Good Weekend magazine. I write a couple of things mm. for them too. So yeah, it's just this is constantly on the back burner. And then oh wait a minute, there's that section of your brain that's meant to be writing a novel mm. or a short story or whatever. So somehow you've got to fit that in as well. And like so it I sounds say, like you fit it in. Good. As in, it sounds like you you kind of you the 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 bread and butter work is scheduled mm. in, and you f- have been fitting in the fiction writing around it. A bit. I mean, I'm working on the next one, but um, it's stalled a bit because I'm doing so much publicity at the moment, yeah. and I'm finding that takes up a lot of time. Mm. Um, not that it's a chore, especially talking to you, Valerie Koo. <laughs> But, um, and, you know, I want as many people to hear about driving Stevie Fracasso as I possibly can because I've worked <laughs> so many years on it. Mm. I want to give it as a good, good a chance as, it, as it, I possibly can. But, yes, it's, you've got to fit it in to really, you've got to force yourself to really do something every day if you possibly can to keep the flow happening. Yeah. So I'm looking at my next question, one of the questions I've written down, and I don't even have to ask it now because I've basically said that Future Tense, which is the fictional album in the novel, um, was, uh, you know, a big album cult, uh, you know, following. Um, and in the book, it's it's uh, an album that still that really resonates with people today. And I was going to ask you what your real life equivalent was of Future Tense, but you're actually writing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, except my songs aren't <laughs> as good as Stevie Fracasso's and will not be as lasting, let me tell you. Although Who at, the, knows, end of the, at, at the end of the book launch, my lead guitarist came up to me afterwards. We were having a beer and he said, you know what, Baz, can you can you show me the other songs? I reckon we could do something with these. They're there pretty go. good. So there I've got go. one fan and he's in my band, so that's always a good thing. So now that you've written your first fiction on your, your first work of fiction, well, published, hmm. I mean, you don't, I know you've written short stories, have you caught the bug now? Is this a thing that you're going to incorporate as part of your portfolio career? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty much all I want to do oh. um, apart from weightlifting. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, that joke doesn't work because this is a podcast. I'm just holding up my puny arms in the air. Um, yes, I definitely want to write novels, Valerie. This is. Um, it's been just such an incredible experience that um, – it's, I just want to keep doing them pretty much till I die or maybe Brilliant. till after I die. Who knows? Okay. Maybe a posthumous one will come out that I hated and <laughs> my kids will bring it out because they need to make a bit of money. Well, I think the book is fantastic. Um, so I want to conclude with what are your top three tips to aspiring writers who hope to, you know, be doing, who hope to be writing their own novels one day? Yeah, well, I'll preface this, Valerie, by saying this is advice for myself. Okay. So if anyone else wants to take this advice, be my guest. But these are things that I've written down 
for myself, and I've just chosen three. I've got a whole list of them, but I've chosen three that, that I'll share. Mm-hmm. So I have to remind of my, myself of these every day. The first one is um, if you want to write a book, don't wait until some point in the future when you think, oh, I'll finally have the time then or I'll have the brain space then mm-hmm. or I'll have a room of my own or the right desk or my job will ease up or the kids will have gotten older and off my hands a bit. Um, so in other words, there's no right time, mm. quote marks. There's no right time. It never comes. You've just got to do it and you've got to do it today. Even if it's 500 words that you end up doing today, that's better than not writing 500 words today. Mm. Um, I've got to tell myself that every day. <laughs> because I, I don't follow my own advice. <laughs> um, the second thing I'd say, and this is something I do do a lot, I started doing it for dialogue, um, but then I started doing it for absolutely everything, including my magazine stories and everything. And I'm sure I know other people on your podcast have said this one, but it's mm. really important. Read your work out aloud mm. when you've written something. You'd be amazed, especially with dialogue, Reading it out will tell you, oh, my God, that is terrible. It just doesn't sound like someone talking. Mm. Um, But until you actually say it out loud, you won't know because you're reading it in your head and John Cusack saying it to Paul (laughs) Rudd. Um, But when you read it out, it'll be obvious obvious it's too long because you're running out of breath saying it and going, oh, man, this needs to be cut in half or or, or three quarters of it needs to go. Mm. So, yes, and also you pick up mistakes really quickly as well, like literals and and just other errors. And the last thing I'd say, uh, and this is one that only recently, after you've now heard my tale of the long and winding road (laughs) to driving Stevie Fricasso, by the way, people, don't write a novel like I just explained how to write a novel because that's not the way to do it. It takes way too long. Do a first draft from the beginning to the ending without looking back. Mm. Don't edit it. Don't look back. Don't delete anything. Is that once you get to the end of it, you get from the beginning through the middle to the end, will that be terrible? Yes, it possibly will be. Will it be not very good? Maybe it's as good as not very good. But you can make it better and Mm. it's there and no one's going to see it, just you. You don't have to show anyone. You have to show your partner. You you definitely don't have to show your publisher. In fact, don't show your publisher your Mm. dirty draft or your vomit draft or whatever you want to call it. But you can't make an empty page any better because it's just an empty page. You've got to have something there. So... I'm learning that uh, at my sort of this tender point uh, after I've already finished the novel that writing a draft from beginning to end is the way to go. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Brilliant. Okay. Congratulations on driving Stevie for Casso. It is just wonderful. And thank you so much for your time today, Barry. Valerie, it has been been a pleasure. And let's let's not wait another... 20 years before we speak again. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, there you go, Barry Devola. I'm sure you could tell that I really enjoyed the book. Um, And uh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's fab. Everyone go and get it. Hmm. All right, so we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week? I'm doing my tax. Oh, gee, that's fun, isn't it? I know. It's Mm. like, uh, it's, it's, it has to be done. 
I'm actually mm. going to meet with my accountant. The only way I ever get my tax done is to actually make the appointment. Mm. And I make the appointment about three weeks out to give me heaps of time to kind of gear up for the, for the great moment. Yes. Um, but I am also going to be, I've given myself a treat because I'm going to be meeting up with a whole bunch of fabulous children's authors on the oh, same nice. day. So once the That's actual- That's your reward. That's my reward. It's a little bit like your banoffee pie. Once the, mm. the pain of the tax is over, mm. I will be um, hanging out with my mates, which is fun. Um, what about you? What are you going to be doing? No, I have to ask you, are you a receipts in the shoebox kind of person? I'm a little bit. I'm not as bad as I used to be. Um, mm. I used to literally be receipts in the shoebox. These days I'm a spreadsheet Oh. And I, I have, yeah, I have a spreadsheet and mm. I have like, I'm kind of half organized. It's a little bit how I write my novels. I'm sort of half organized and half not. Um, so I outline a lot more than I used to. And tax wise, I organize myself a lot more than I used to. Um, mostly because my poor accountant who I've been with for many, many years just finally said to me one day, can we not do this anymore, please? Yeah, right. So mm. when you say your spreadsheet, do you mean that your expenses, so your receipts, you keep somewhere, but then you input them into a spreadsheet? Is no, that I you're... mean that I keep track of all of my other bits mm-hmm. via a spreadsheet. And then I have to go through, like all of my receipts are filed in several in a, several drawers. I've got several drawers. Like pa- um, in hard copy? In hard copy. Mm-hmm. And then I go through and sort them all out. Wow. That's what I have to do before I go see him. I know. It's look honestly, I hate myself too, but it's just it I, I don't have any other <gasps> Can I give you a tip? Interest. And everyone else a tip? Yeah, please. Do. Yes, because I think this is fantastic. Um it's an app on your phone called mm. Expensify. This is not sponsored. <laughs> I genuinely <laughs> not use it. <sponsored. laughs> Hashtag not sponsored. It's called Expensify and it may well cost you I think it costs me six dollars a month or something, but it's totally worth the six dollars a month. All right, because, I'm writing it down. What does it yeah, do? Expensify. So basically, I mean, you get receipts one of two ways, right? You either buy something online and it's you get it via email, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Same with you know your your online subscriptions with you know whether it's Netflix or whatever. Um, but also you might buy something at the newsagent, at the shop, or at Officeworks or whatever, and they will give you the hard copy, right? Yeah. So online, it's easy. You get in your email and then you forward it immediately to a, a specific email address. Yeah. And it just magically recognises the amount, what it's for, who the, the actual suppliers, like, you know, if it's Officeworks really? or whatever. Yes, it's all there. And once you start classifying things as, say, let's say it's Officeworks, um, as stationary, in the future, it recognises, oh, Officeworks, it might be stationary and it classifies it for you. Wow. You know what I mean? So, but then let's say you go to the newsagent because I go to the newsagent in the bookshop and I'll buy actual things and I get a hard copy. They give me the receipt, right? Mm-hmm. So they, I, they always say, would you like the receipt? I say, yes, please. And I get my receipt. And then as I'm standing at the counter <laughs> with my receipt just given to me, I just open Expensify because it's on the my first page of my iPhone. Mm-hmm. And it, it has a camera function within the app. Oh, you take a photo of it. You take a photo of it, but that's literally all you do because with that photo, as long as you haven't obscured the the writing on the receipt, it also recognises the 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 shop, the amount, you know, the everything, mm. and it inputs it. And again, if you go to that bookshop enough or whatever, it will recognise it. If you classify it as books, it will then classify it in the future. 
And then when it comes to tax time, you literally, or or at any time you want to do this, you literally press a button and it spits out the spreadsheet with everything you want. That sounds good. I need to give that a go. My my accountant will love me. He will yes. start sending me Christmas cards again if I do that, I reckon. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you kind of look at something on your credit card or maybe your accountant asks you, what did you do on the, 30, on the 29th of May? What was this, you know, charge on the 29th of May with this obscure, you know, um, supplier? And you can just look it up and expensify on the 29th of May what you spent your money on. Wow. I know that sounded like an ad, but I promise you it's not sponsored. <laughs> it really did sound like an ad, but you sold me on it because I, like, honestly, like, I, I appreci- fully appreciate that my methods are not good. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to be brought kicking and screaming into the 21st century. That sounds great. Yes, it'll save a lot of time. Mm. Um, okay, so where do we find you online, Al? Well, you'll find me with my receipts. I will be at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. Um, you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And also, make sure you join us in the listener community on Facebook. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there because it's such fantastic people, such a lovely community, great conversations happening, and um, you can connect with us in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.